In my senior year of high school, I decided to start applying for agriculture schools. There is a really good one, Central American Honduras. Is, his name is Zamorano University. So I was in Zamorano for four years in Honduras studying tropical and subtropical agriculture. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Dario Chavez. He's an associate professor at University of Georgia in the horticulture department. And we're going to talk about, surprise, surprise, peaches, because they yeah. know they're associated with Georgia. So, <laughs> Dario, thanks for coming. Oh, thank you for inviting me. And it is a pleasure always to be able to talk about peaches. Well, tell me a bit about your background. What got you interested in peaches? Yeah, uh, my background is kind of unique. Probably, as you can hear in my accent, I actually am not a, originally from the uh, United States. I am originally from Ecuador, South America. come from a four-generation farming family. And we are located in the Andes, basically a in the mountains and parents used to plant and my grandparents used to plant potatoes, corn, carrots and on other crops from the Andes. And then had some dairy cattle and beef cattle. So finally, you know, it's funny how when you're a kid you really don't see that when you when you are living in a farm you really don't see that as your future sometimes. Mm, yeah, you probably some- you probably want the opposite sometimes. <laughs> no, well, it's, it's just funny. You you never think about it until it hits you that you actually enjoy doing it. In my senior year of high school, I decided to start applying for agriculture schools. There is a really good one in Central American Honduras. Is, his name is Zamorano University. So I was in Zamorano for four years in Honduras studying tropical and subtropical agriculture. After that, I sadly never went back to my country. I basically kept going with education and and did my master's at the University of Florida in Blueberry, then my PhD later on in peaches, citrus, some mandarins, and some plums. And after that, I started applying for jobs, and, and the position in Georgia was open, and basically it was meant to be. Well, when you do advanced study in you know, plums and peaches and things like that, master's, PhD. What do you study? Like, what was your PhD about? Yeah, so so in, in, in my master's, it was a... So my background is genetics, plant breeding and genetics. And a, for my master's, I basically was working on the southern high bush that is the major, major type of blueberries grown in the southeastern U.S. And I was looking at the wild species of Bacinian darwai, that is basically one of the ancestral parents of the whole southern high bush blueberry industry. So I was just trying to increase the genetic diversity from, from material in the wild in Florida that, that my advisor had collected. So I did a lot of work with that, a, a lot of crosses and a lot of advanced material that is probably still going around in the breeding program, in the blueberry breeding program at the University of Florida. And for yeah, my I've PhD, heard, um 
Oh, good, mm -hmm. good. Yeah. And for my PhD, I, I basically kind of continue in the area of, of wild genetics, wild species, and I worked on studying the North American plums. Uh, funny enough, a lot of people don't know that a center of diversity for plums is actually North America. So what I did for my PhDs was travel all across the U.S. collecting wild species of plums and is collecting basically fruit and, and, and plant material and also sharing it with the National John Plasm Repository for future access of the uh, by breeders or, or horticulturists or whoever wants to use it. And then I study also the species relationships between the different wild species are, and compared with the, with the plums and peaches and other things. Yeah, okay. Um, from what I understand, this may be wrong, but it seems like uh, growers will focus on just one kind of banana or peach or plum or whatever it is, and there's no diversity in what they grow. And therefore, I guess there's a lot of you know, danger that an entire crop could be wiped out. Do you see yes. that with peaches and plums, or is it not that case? It depends. Like, like you can see a lot of bottlenecks, and that's what basically we call them in, in, the, in the breeding and the genetics. So basically, you know, there was a, a variety of cultivar that was far superior. So everybody started using it as a pairing. So you, you basically close or, or narrow your, your genetic base because everybody's using that, that material. So it does happen with, with other crops. And, and the idea is to be able to, cap that, uh, to keep that, that genetic diversity moving. So that's why always you, you try to bring material from outside. Or, or the closest that you can have to a wild type. Because during breeding and selection, we lose certain things. Like, you know, if you are, we are, we're breeding or selecting for, let's say, a superior fruit size or color, maybe we're losing some of the quality traits. Those quality traits are in older varieties that, you know, at the time, basically, they were not focusing on that, those traits that were important. And the same thing with diseases. I think so that's the, the main case where people go to the wild species to, to try to find resistant or, or genes of interest that can help us with those, with those things. So yeah, uh, that is kind of the idea about studying the wild species. Well, do um, universities or large farms, do they have a deliberate area that they keep wild and they breed all kinds of stuff, like a nursery? It it depends. So, so there is, a, if, you, if you look at, at breeding programs, there is what is called public and private institutions or, or companies. So public, normally you have what it would be universities. You have the federal government as well, the, the USDA has some breeding programs as well. But then you have a lot of private companies that now have the kind of a vertical system in the sense of like, they do breeding and genetics, produce their own varieties, and they also grow it. So basically, they are feeding the, the pipeline. They are, they are producing varieties that they know that commercially or horticulturally speaking, they can, they can do whatever they need to for their market window. So bigger, bigger companies tend to do that. They have their own breeding and they have their own R&D for, for basically horticulture management. Well, it's good they do that because, again, just from the, you know, the public point of view, it just seems like, a, you know, again, only one kind of banana is being used, Correct. only one kind of this, one kind of that. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense because, like, you know, again, if there's a, a big pest problem or disease or, you know, everything can be wiped out. 
yeah, I'm yeah, glad that some yeah, people are, right. are doing this. Is it being mm -hmm. done on a mass scale, or is it not focused on very much, in your opinion? So, so there's companies that are that are sometimes uh, located in a regional aspect, or it can be also international companies. You know, if you if you think, for example, if you go to the supermarket and just let's just talk about the small fruits, you see Driscolls, uh, Driscolls, uh, blueberries, raspberries, strawberries, and others. Well, they do have their own breeding programs, and their breeding programs basically are located in California, Florida, Mexico, Europe, different locations in Europe. So, so they are already an international company where, which are basically breeding varieties for their growers. So they have different varieties for different regions, so, and also they are producing new material for, for their growers as well. So what are you studying right now about peaches? Like, what are you responsible for at you know the university, and what are you studying? Yeah, so my position is what I call the peach specialist for the University of Georgia, and my main focus is horticulture management. I've been working a lot on irrigation and fertilization management, uh, trying to set up updated guidelines for both of them, both fertilization and irrigation. And then also I have been doing uh, a lot of rooftop trials. What I mean by rooftop trials is basically there is new uh, cultivars, new genetic material that is being produced by either uh, commercial companies, private companies, or the USDA or universities that basically are rooftops that can be adapted to the, to the region. And they have certain characteristics that are important for us, for example, nematode resistance, or adaptability for the heavy soils that we have and so on. So we do a lot of those trials uh, looking at the new rootstocks, how, how, how will they fare basically for, the, for Georgia and the Southeastern US. In addition, I have been doing some also on studying and basically a breeding and selection for materials that basically are adapted to the South Georgia and North Florida area. We have a program uh, that has been breeding peaches for that area since the 90s, and it has been in collaboration with the University of Florida, Dr. Jose Chaparro, and the USDA with the former uh, rooster breeder, uh, Tom Beckman. That breeding program has been breeding basically material for the Gulf area for now 30 years. The nice thing about that, that breeding program is that we have seen a lot of issues uh, with climate, um, basically variation from year to year. What it means is that, you know, some winters are very hot and we don't uh, accumulate enough chill. And chill is basically the amount of cold uh, that we get uh, for a plant to basically come out of dormancy. And, and dormancy, people think about dormancy is basically uh, when you have the fall, the leaves start coming down from trees and growth stops and basically the plants go into a dormant state and that's called dormancy and then you know we have to have enough cold and, and basically chill hours that we accumulate for that plant and then once we start getting warmer uh, temperatures in the spring then they will start blooming or or leafing out so the nice thing about the south georgia program, again, in collaboration with the University of Florida and the USDA, is that that program has been doing selections for this climate variability for years. So we have certain varieties that are very interesting because they are consistently producing fruit 
year after year, even when we have either freezes or we have warmer winters and things like that. So we are, are we keep going with that effort and investing a lot of time to try to keep that breeding program going because I believe it's currently the only breeding program in, in a public institution, university, uh, that actually targets that chill requirement, that chill range of coal. What happens if the, uh, the chill is shortened or it's not deep enough? What will yeah, the, uh, so, the trees do? Yeah, so, that, so that's an interesting thing about the peaches. If you have a peach tree that is basically has, let's say, you know, 900 chill hours, that's normally what you will need for a middle Georgia. And you get 400 or 500 chill hours. And basically those trees don't, don't bloom and even have a very hard time actually even leafing out. So, so chill is very important. It kind of is a reset button for, for, a, for a plant to come out and start, a, it start growing again. How do the trees know how much chill there is? Like, Do they have a molecular clock that yeah, counts so, up so the chill hours? Correct. So once they go dormant, there is a, a molecular system within the plant that basically starts a, it both is a light also for the period and also a temperature that tells them that basically, you know, we, we're, we're in cessation, we're, we're getting what we need. And then once they uh, accumulate what they need, basically the plant is just waiting for, for warmer temperatures. So it is two parts, basically. One is the chill requirement, uh, but also there's a, a heat accumulation after, afterwards as well. Has anyone been able to study where the clock is that, again, essentially counts the chill hours? Yeah, so, so, there's, so there is a lot of studies. And actually, there is a person that's doing a, a pretty interesting study in Wisconsin. actually knew him from, from grad school. Uh, he's just trying to determine that basically how, how, the, how the clock works, because it sometimes if, if you look at it from the perspective of having a chilling requirement and heat accumulation, it's like you have two different things working against each other. Being able to select uh, or select or characterize plants using both of them, both of those systems, it kind of is kind of complicated because if you think about it, you know, when the chill is, is accumulated or is fulfilled, and when the heat requirement starts to uh, it starts clocking in, it's it kind of a gray area. But this person is actually trying to create a whole new concept and I guess a whole new idea of how these are not uh, disconnected. They're actually just one thing. For me, it would be difficult to explain because it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty new. So I'm still grappling with the yeah. idea. But if you want to provide you with information of him, you can have a really great conversation with him, to be honest with you. Sure, we'll we'll chill out later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do, um, is there any way to uh, well, the temperature and uh, is a short chill season? You know, not many hours, but the chill is very deep, or long and deep, or long and shallow, etc. What about temperature? How does that affect how the peach trees grow? Hey, Dario, did you hear my question? No, I didn't hear you. Can you repeat oh, it sorry. again? Sorry. Sure. What, what about the temperature of the chill? So like the number of days, sorry, the number of hours is important, as you mentioned. But yeah, what about so, the degree of the chill? Yeah, so that's another funny question. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a very interesting question. So there's different models that, that have been figured out by different researchers. 
So the, the, the basic one and the most known one are Weinberger models. And then those are basically below 40, 32 to 45 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. And then uh, there is the modify is basically between 32 and 45. And the normal is below 45. And then there is a Utah model. The question uh, is difficult to say it in, in here because I don't remember all the steps, but it basically has a heating component that it creates a negation to the chill. So if you get warmer days, it will negate the amount of chill that you're getting. And then there is a new one called the dynamic model that was uh, proposed by uh, a RS in from Greece. And the interesting thing is that actually works pretty nice for the kind of environment that we have. So that is a, a new model that we're using. And the dynamic model, instead of talking about chill hours, that, that what we, that's the terminology that we normally use for the Weinberger model, uh, we, call, we, we talk about chill portions. And, and basically the chill portions, uh, what it does is, in, let's see if I can explain in general terms, is that it's like you have two buckets and let's say the water is coming down in the first bucket and the first bucket is a little bit above the second one. And then when the first bucket it fills itself up, then it drops down, the water drops down to the second bucket. So the first bucket is basically like immediate amount of chill that the plant is getting. What means is that, you know, let's say we have today, we have a chill accumulated and then all of a sudden we are going to have a whole week of chill so because it's a constant and throughout the whole week it basically says you know we have this whole week of chill accumulated and it becomes more permanent so that amount of chill uh, or water flows to the second bucket and that second bucket is basically uh, a chill uh, portion that is permanently uh, basically part of the plan now now, it can happen the other case that, you know, you get chilled today, but tomorrow is going to be really warm. So basically what happens is that that bucket just fills today uh, to whatever level it fills, but because tomorrow is going to be warm, instead of dumping to the more permanent chill portion, it actually just throws away that, that water, doesn't go to that, to that permanent bucket. So it, it, it basically, it works in a kind of a sense of like, if you have a constant weather, um, cold, cooler climate, you get a more permanent, more a, a better quality chill accumulation. But if you get days that you get a cold day and then tomorrow a warm day and then warm day and then cold day, you basically know that the plant is not uh, going truly in a cessation. And basically, well, it sounds like it uh, resets the clock in a way. Correct, correct. So this is a very interesting model, but the interesting thing about it is that when you compare the amount of chill portions that are supposed to be required by the variety to the amount of chill portions that you receive, and you what will you see physiologically speaking on in the field at the end of the season, it actually explains better than the other models. It actually it, it makes more sense physiologically speaking. So okay. so California has been using it for almonds, things that they are using it for peaches as well. We res recently, almost the last two years, we have using it for peaches in South Carolina, Alabama, Georgia. I'm not how, sure how if, predictive how predictive is it? 
it, it's pretty you mean predictive like uh, in the season like you know how much short portions are you going to be getting or how the plants are yeah like right you, you go through a season and you say oh no we're probably not going to yeah. have much or oh great we're going to have this you know like can you estimate the harvest bounty the yield so no you cannot estimate the harvest yield but but you can estimate if the plants are going to act physiologically speaking normal what i mean by that is that you know uh, you have an estimate of where let's say if you have a chill accumulation that requirement of a plant for 30 chill portions and you just got 20 you know that you're in trouble is there Basically, anything that can be done to i don't know to shock cool them or to keep them warmer i mean i guess keeping them warmer than normal is maybe easier than keeping them cooler than normal i don't know what could you yes. do to, to modulate so there's different ways that we can do it and some of the ways that we can do it are either genetically some varieties are actually better adapted to certain conditions like that so what we have found in the last years of of lack of chill is that there's certain varieties that even when we have a year that we don't get enough chill they will still come out of dormancy and will act pretty normal have a good yield and those those varieties were interested because basically um, they are adapted to those conditions. And that is why we I was saying that the South Georgia program is very interested because we get that variation year after year. Now, there is also chemical products that can be used. Dorbex is one that has been used in blueberries. It has been tried in peaches, but uh, sadly, you know, it is not as consistent as, as we would like. So sometimes uh, we have come with a decision that basically is better not to do anything and just let the plants come out of dormancy by themselves. And another things that we're doing is actually researching other compounds that have come up as uh, products that will help with that. So we're looking into products that basically will, will do what you just said, allow the plant to come out of dormancy and also synchronize the bloom. So that means that it will synchronize as well the, the harvest. So in the, in the way we don't have to have like, let's say a peach variety that, that needs to be harvested for one week instead of having a peach variety that will be harvested three or four weeks because of the lack of chill. Lack of chill basically will, will just increase the, the period of bloom, which it will be a problem as well. Yeah, I mean, how long do peach trees take to become uh, mature where they produce peaches you know, from scratch? How many years? Oh, it, normally a peach tree takes about uh, 40 years when you get the commercial the commercial amount of, of basically that you will get for a mature tree. But you can have a harvest and a year tree as well. Well, that's, that's a, I guess, a big question of mine is uh, how can people understand, again, the clocks that determine, oh, like how does the, you know, how does the tree know it's been four seasons? You know, where is the internal mechanism that stores that information up on a clock or a counter? And could you make it, you think you can modulate it where um, a peach tree could produce in two years instead of four? Is anyone studying that? So so a, a tree can produce in three years, but it's just more the transition between a juvenile to an adult. So it's more about the size of the tree and also the, the transition from juvenile to adult. You know, you need a, a bigger canopy. So it's more about the tree growth than, than anything else related. If, if you had a bigger oh. tree... From year one, you will have fruit from year one. It's just it's just basically just because you don't have that canopy yet. Well, again, all right. So there is what enough 
the tree senses that there's enough of certain nutrients and therefore it can go to, you know, just not go to seed, but, you know, produce fruit. Like what are some yeah, of the cool. cues that you'd imagine that a, a tree uses to know, okay, this year we're going to produce fruit versus not. You mean like in, in year three or year four or, or in the past? Yeah, like what changes, what changes between year three and four, you know, or year Again, two and three? It, it, it just, it's just the, it just starts producing more flower buds instead of just doing vegetable buds. So you have a, a the canopy size basically just just starts being more uh, reproductive. Like you get flower buds that will be set. Generally speaking, you know you can have a crop on your tree, but you try to avoid having a large crop because you want to grow the canopy. Commercially speaking, right. But the tree must know. Okay, now I have enough branches to you know, to produce the right kind of flowers. But how does it know that? I, I'm trying to understand the question, but <laughs> I don't think so. I, I understand with what, well, what I'll side just, I'll you're just asking. Think, like, yeah, what's the difference between a juvenile and a mature tree besides just size? What are some of the other differences physiologically? So so it doesn't produce uh, the, the amount of flower buds, basically mostly vegetable buds. For reproductive systems to produce a, a fruit, Basically, it just happens when 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 you have that transition. Okay, um, and then a couple of questions on rootstocks. So, are rootstocks harvested at the end of a growing season? And you know, what if pesticides and all these other sides are applied to it? What happens to the rootstock if you're going to use it as breeding or grafting for later on? Do you have to do it before you know the plants are sprayed, or have ones that never get sprayed, or it's just you know, the chemicals sprayed on them go along with the rootstock. So the rootstocks are, are basically, are you asking commercially speaking how, how they are produced or? Any, yeah, how? any which way. Uh, you know, what yeah. happens with, in terms of uh, pesticide use? Yeah, so so the rootstocks, uh, if you go to uh, the nurseries, commercial nurseries, what they do is they buy the seed or their vegetative cuttings, uh, rooted cuttings of the rootstock. And they basically plant them in the in the field as as if you thought about uh, in a high density system uh, where uh, you know the 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 easiest simplest comparison would be corn. You basically plant the the, the rootstocks very close to each other, and have to do uh, chemical management and another management as needed. For example, uh, take care of weeds and fertilize those rootstocks and and also any insect that may damage the the, the foliage or the hem damage the or create issues for the growth of the rootstock. So once the rootstock grows for a season, if they planted the seed, let's say this winter, that seed will germinate next year. And that seedling will grow uh, basically until June. And in June, it will be budded. So it will have a, enough caliper pencil size or even more to be able to be budded with a commercial a scion variety and that commercial scion variety can be whatever the growers uh, pay for contracts for it or it can be basically whatever they are offering in their nursery so that scion variety is budded in june those buds get basically kept and grow so the plant can have two genetic organisms together both the rootstock and scion now the rootstock that are selected are a very region dependent because they they have certain traits that are interest of interest for the region. Uh, it could be like nematode resistance or fish to shore life for in the case of the peaches. So if you know you can have three or four different rootstocks in a in a in a nursery. 
depending on what the growers want. Yeah, but how do you grow organic peaches if uh, the rootstocks are all sprayed with chemicals and stuff? Well, that that basically will have to be a nursery that 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 is growing organic. So they basically will have to to follow all the procedures since uh, the seed propagation or or growth or or the cuttings. So it will have to basically have all all of that. Instead of using herbicides for weeds, you will have to plow the metals and then the fertilizer source. So it will have to basically be uh, organic, be able to be used in, in an organic setting. So you can do it. It's just that you will have to be basically organic managed. Now, I don't know how the, the commercial nurseries uh, deal with this. And I don't know if they actually have uh, or offer organic uh, plants or seedlings. That's a good question. But there is uh, some organic commercial growers in the state of uh, South Carolina, mainly. And I know that there's probably some in California. They do have a basically some of this, their production uh, system in their organic production. I don't know if by regulations, if USDA regulations or an orchard just has to be like three or four years without the use of, of pesticides. So if, if you know that a plantlet that you are growing is basically has been just commercially grown, but is not going to produce any fruit in three or four years, I am not sure that, that if I meet if you need or not an organic plantlet being propagated for you. It, again, is something that I don't know, but I'm just, I'm just wondering that. Well, um, has anyone looked at the, uh, you know, the success or uptake of rootstock grafts, you know, for organic versus non-organic peach trees? Uh, I, I haven't had the, it hasn't been part of my, of my objectives for my, for my program. So I have not looked at it. And I don't know if somebody else has looked. Yeah, it's just interesting. Like if, if you have, like, how long can peach trees produce peaches for? How old can they get till they? Can you, they you, can, you can produce for three to four years. It will start producing and then you can keep a tree for 13, 14 years. So what happens to the, uh, the trees that are, let's say, like 10 years old? What are the peaches like versus ones that are new? You know, it's their first year where they spit out peaches. What's the differences? Differences mainly is the yield. You will have a, basically a, a bigger bigger amount of peaches being produced. In general, the fruit would be um, almost the same. There's really not a lot of differences. Has anyone tried to characterize them? I mean, and, and you know, why do peach trees stop growing fruits? What happens to them when they're like 13 years old? They don't stop growing. They just die. But why? So the whole tree it, dies? N- yes, the tree dies because of basically different diseases in the in the soil. You know, peaches have been producing this uh, region for 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 two, three, four generations. So you are planting peaches in the same area that that once were planted before. So there is a lot of replanting diseases. Uh, there is a lot of uh, issues with 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 health, tree health. And normally, if peaches start basically going down around year thirteen. You start losing scaffolds because of insects and and other other damages mechanical damages or different things. So it becomes not um, economically feasible to keep a tree that basically just producing one scaffold versus four or five scaffolds. So mm. it makes more sense. I mean, they, they are aging then. The trees are aging. Otherwise, why would this Correct. happen, you know? So what? Have, so has anyone studied, again, peaches that are from younger trees versus older ones? I would think there's got to be something different about them. Maybe taste well, there, or... 
Yeah. Well, there is a, there is a nutritional aspect that differences between the trees, but uh, flavor-wise, it's, it's the same. We have done sensory studies from from different varieties, and and we really don't see that much differences in the sense of like a, if you look at a at a peach variety from 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 one location to another, there's a lot of differences. So be, being to being able to pinpoint a difference from age versus a difference from location or a difference for production management setups or it, it would be it would be very difficult. There's too much variation. Do you understand what I mean? Okay. Yeah. I was just wondering if anyone has uh, has quantified these things. So okay. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We we have a study looking at the at the sensory aspects of different varieties, just trying to see varieties that may personally speaking taste better. There's differences about the amount of volatiles and, and quantities that they produce. But then when you compare the same varieties one year to another, you you get differences too. So so that's why I kind of try to say that to me it will it will be very difficult to be able to pinpoint that to to age or 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 things like that. Mm, okay. All right. Well, very good, Dario. Uh, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Yeah, we have a website at, um, at UGA. It's called Chavez Lab UGA. If you search in Google, you, uh, the website will come up and, and then you can see a lot of our research and things like that. Okay. Well, very good, Dario. Thank you for, uh, you know, for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. No problem. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.